Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. NAHU allies in the House introduced H.R. 5318 last week, better known as the Common Sense Reporting Act. This bill deals with ACA employer reporting requirements under Section 6055 and 6056. In addition, things are heating up on Capitol Hill as Democrats continue infighting regarding what to include in their reconciliation package. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU's Vice President of Congressional Affairs, Chris Hartman, and Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, Marcy Buckner, are here to discuss the current status of reconciliation talks in addition to the specifics of the aforementioned employer reporting bill. Welcome to the podcast, guys. I know folks may be anxious to learn what's going on in Congress right now regarding reconciliation, but I want to start by talking about the Common Sense Reporting Act. So what would this bill do and why does NAHU support it? So what's currently happening in this country is individuals who are employed hear about healthcare.gov or one of the state exchanges through all the advertising that's going on out there, or honestly, even employers are required to tell their employees about the existence of healthcare.gov. They go onto the website, and one of the questions that pops up is, were you given an affordable offer of coverage from your employer? Well, unfortunately, most Americans don't understand this is actually a legal question. And they've heard about possible free plans on healthcare.gov, and perhaps their employer has a cost of $25, $50 a month on their insurance plan. So they want to see what else is out there. And they, uh, so they put no. And what happens when you put no to that question is the plans pop up, but with the subsidies included. If you had picked yes, you could still look at the plans, but without subsidies included. So they will go through the plans and they will select a plan and get on that. And then down the road, and when I say down the road, I mean possibly years down the road, the IRS looks at this information and says, well, this person got a subsidy. They must not be getting health insurance from their employer. And so penalty notices go out. They call health insurance agents and brokers, usually in a panic, and say they got this penalty notice from the IRS. What are we going to do about it? And so time, money, possibly lawyers, accountants, and others are used to overturn this information. We've actually found out from the IRS that there is currently 80% overturn rate of these notices. In my mind, that's an 80% error rate from the IRS, but they call it an 80% overturn rate. From the consumer's point of view, what can also then happen is after we were able to get this overturned is the IRS could now go after that individual for getting a tax credit that they were not entitled to because under the ICA, as we know, if you're given affordable offer coverage from your employer, you are not entitled to a tax credit. So the IRS can then go after the individual for all those tax credits they got. And we're also talking about people who inherently under the rules of the ACA prior to the American Rescue Plan were making less than 400% of poverty. For a family plan, that could be tens of thousands of dollars that they end up in the IRS. They then easily could get mad at their employer for feeling that they are being turned in by their employer. 
to the IRS when really what the employer was trying to do was get the tax penalties to not be on them where they because they were not violating the law. So what this bill does is allows employers to prospectively uh, tell the IRS that they are offering health insurance for their employees. Uh, this will be good for the employees. This will be good for the employers. This would allow you to go to healthcare.gov and it would pop up with your information and say, your employer is offering you an affordable offer of coverage. You should go back to your employer. We think that this will reduce the panic and the money and the time that employers are spending to overturn these penalties that are out there. Further, the bill does things like stops uh, employers having to collect dependent social security numbers. We're all very used to handing our own social security number over to our employers, but until the ACA came along, people were never asked to hand over their dependent social security number to employers, and employers don't want this information. With all the data security concerns that have been going on out there, the last thing they want to do is hold onto more social security numbers. And even for a business of 50, 75 people, once you get all the dependent social security numbers, employee social security numbers, we could be talking about thousands of social security numbers that our employers are now required to hold on and use. And we know from other programs that exist in the federal government that we can find individuals by matching names and birth dates and not using social security numbers. So this legislation would also uh, eliminate that. And I just feel that, uh, you know, just as its name, it's the Common Sense Reporting Act. This would streamline the process for individuals, for consumers, it would lessen the burden on employers on data collection and reporting, and would lessen the time and money and panic that is spent on overturning tax penalty notices. And with this, there is a choice. So it will still allow for the current reporting methods to be in place. So this isn't going to completely do away with the employer reporting system the way that it is, but it allows employers to voluntarily opt in to this common sense prospective reporting for employer reporting. As we keep saying, this is the common sense approach. It makes sense. Right now, as you all know, you're reporting at the end of the year, after the fact, after you've offered your coverage, after the plan year, after that potential employee that Chris was using as an example has gone in and gotten an individual coverage and, and possibly a subsidy. And so we believe reporting this at the beginning of the year makes sense. It's common sense. You're reporting as you're going in what you're going to be offering. And so it helps just so much more with reconciling, not just the, the process for employer reporting, but that cohesion between the individual employee and their employer-sponsored coverage and how those meld together. We also think it's going to help the IRS out without having to send out all of those 226J letters and then trying to reconcile individuals' taxes for those that may have received a subsidy when they did have what was a, a quote, affordable offer of coverage from their employer. And, and one other thing that it does, it does put somewhat of a, of a statute of limitations, for lack of a better term, on how long the IRS can go back, how many years they can go back on an employer to try to reconcile some of these pieces with those 226J letters. How far back can they go to say someone had an affordable offer of coverage and, and went and got a subsidy or that they didn't offer coverage and, and ended up with a subsidy and then now they, they are penalized. So it does help from that perspective where now, since we've been sitting with the ACA for, for quite some time, we see where the IRS is going back years and years. And oftentimes by the time an employer is notified, 
they're notified about an employee that no, no longer works there. Sometimes the people who are in that department at the employer weren't there when this offer of coverage happened. You know, a, a lot of those things where it's hard to, to go back and put the missing pieces together. And so this would put a cap on that. So they can only go back a maximum of four years. So Marcy, does the Common Sense Reporting Act affect those proposed electronic filing requirements that we talked about on last week's episode of the podcast? Well, Dan, I'll give you a lawyer answer. Yes and no. (laughs) So yes, it touches on those reporting requirements under 6055 and 6056, because again, you would be reporting those aspects prospectively and at the beginning of the year, instead of at the end of the year, if you choose to go into this voluntary prospective reporting system, but no (laughs) to your question, as in, does it change anything from the proposed rule that we commented on last week? No, it would not change the requirement that reduce the amount of employees an employer has to require them to report electronically. Uh, so, so that doesn't change. So that's where we get to that yes and no uh, answer for, for your question of how it would impact the proposed rule that we talked about last week. So how can NAHE members help get this bill over any legislative hurdles that might stand in its way? NAHU members can help us to get this over the finish line. As you all know, we've been working on this for quite some time, and we think Congress is is ready for this common sense approach and ready to pass it. But you all can help us. Last week, we went live with an Operation Shout. That's our messaging system that allows you to message your members of Congress and urge them to co-sponsor this legislation. Right now, it's in the House, and we are looking to have it introduced with a companion bill in the Senate. And with the Operation Shout, especially with a piece like this that we know would be so valuable to your employer clients, it's a message that you can fill out and send on behalf of yourself to your members of Congress. And then you can forward that message to your employer clients so that they can fill it out and message their members of Congress as an employer and tell them how important this would be for them if this were to pass. And we'll have a link to that Operation Shout. It, it is on our website, but we'll also have it in this week's Washington update as well as last week. So we've already discussed the basics of reconciliation a few times on the podcast recently. And please listen to the September 10th edition of the Healthcare Happy Hour if you missed that. So where exactly in the reconciliation process are we? What steps remain from here? So the House of Representatives has put together a bill that has gone through all of its committees The House Budget Committee met last Saturday and put together those bills into one larger package. And now the bill is before the House Rules Committee, which is the final step before uh, going to the House floor. And the House Rules Committee, what they decide are things like, what, what are the terms of debate that will be done in the House of Representatives? So that takes care of the House side. The Senate side is not going to mark up in committees because all the committees in the Senate are actually divided literally 50-50. So it depends on the size of the committee, but some of them might have 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, eight Republicans and eight Democrats. So basically nothing could ever pass if they tried to mark it up through committees. And so, and what we really believe what will happen is that these issues about what the reconciliation should look like will be negotiated out between the House and the Senate. We've seen recent reports that Senator Manchin is still 
holding to a top line of 1.5 trillion. Keep in mind that the bill that the House has stitched together is 3.5 trillion. So that's a big gap to cover. Other things that the Senate is dealing with is there are a lot of rules, as we discussed in the previous podcast, about what can be included in reconciliation. And essentially that is taxing and spending issues only. For example, they've gone to the parliamentarian and asked if any parts of immigration reform can be included, such as protections for the dreamers. And she said no. So those sorts of things are now being worked out uh, in the Senate to figure out what is actually something that's allowed to pass the Senate through reconciliation under what is called the Byrd Rules and therefore can pass by a simple majority. So that's where we are in the in the process, you can see you continue to see a lot of this being debated in the media, particularly by progressive Democrats who already feel that 3.5 trillion is a negotiation down from the amount they want to spend, and the more conservative members like Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, who are holding tight onto the 1.5. And as far as the timeline, Dan, you asked what are the the next steps? Obviously, the next steps, as Chris outlined them, um, trying to eventually get to the point where we have a House floor vote and a Senate vote and that they come together on language. But we're really seeing that this is going to be extended where earlier, maybe a month or so ago, when they came back from August recess, we thought that maybe we would have this all wrapped up in a tidy bow by mid-October. Now it's looking like late October into November. We could be talking about this while we're gathered around our Thanksgiving table. This could take quite some time, as you can imagine, especially when we're trying to negotiate down, if they're trying to get from 3.5 trillion to 1.5, if that ends up being the magic number to get all the Democrats on board, they're going to have to get their red pens out and really start marking things out, which is going to take a lot of time to negotiate. What would you say are the major points of contention in the House Budget Committee's current version of the reconciliation bill? I think... uh and I'm only going to refer to healthcare issues because there are actually lots of points of contention that have nothing to do with healthcare, uh, and I think will be a big fight. But within the healthcare arena, the fight is a divide between the progressives and and the moderates. Again, like most of the fights in this battle, the m- moderate side, who NAHU speaks to more often's priorities are really around the tax credits for the ACA and making what's in the American Rescue Plan permanent. When I say permanent, I mean it's a 10-year window, so out over those 10 years. And some sort of fix for those who are not getting anything in states that did not expand Medicaid. So there's a gap where if you did not expand Medicaid, you're not eligible for Medicaid, but you're also not eligible for any tax credits under the ACA. And you just simply don't get any assistance from the government for your health care. What was in the House bill is for two years, essentially, ACA plans will go down into that group and be offered subsidies to be able to have individual plans. Uh, We do have some concerns about the way it's structured. For example, there is no employer firewall in that provision the way the rest of the ACA normally is, but those people will be getting an insurance. Um, And after those two years, it creates a federally run Medicaid program that would fill in the gaps. I have concerns about any new federally run program by the federal government for health insurance, because that could easily be adopted into a public option. But this is their current solution for filling in that gap. I think there's lots of questions to be asked. For example, what happens if you were a state who did expand Medicaid? Why would you want to keep that expansion if you could just turn it over for others to be able to handle? 
So I think there are lots of questions, but those are the priorities that are coming from the moderate side. From the progressive side, the priorities are much more around things like lowering the age of Medicare to 60 and about expanding benefits under Medicare into areas of vision, dental, and hearing. And you really see expanding the size of Medicare and the types of activities of Medicare of really being the priorities of progressives in the Senate and the House, and really sort of creating a Medicare program that is larger and for more people. I think it's kind of part of their goal to eventually try to get Medicare to be the one program that everyone's under and it steps in those sorts of directions. So obviously those are much bigger concerns because these are clearly concerns that are heading down a much more single payer direction. And I think when you look at this, the question will become, if we're not spending 3.5 trillion, what gets cut? This is also where you find a dispute between the moderates and progressives. The progressives would like to fund everything, but for a few years. So give everything that all the ideas that are out there money, but fund it for two to three years. The moderates are like, no, we, we should not be trying to fund everything. We should be funding the things that are going to affect the, the most vulnerable and the most needy at that 10 year window and just complete it. So that's why they're only interested in doing the tax credits and Medicaid because those things are in the minds are people, if you are in that gap, you're not getting any help about getting insurance. You're probably going uninsured. And they're worried about covering those people who are going to get insurance. The progressives are much more worried about adding benefits to the system. As we've talked about with lowering the age of Medicare from 65 down to 60, many of those people are already insured by the employer-based healthcare system, which is where we think is the right healthcare home for them. And to be honest, really often surprise better benefits for people than parts of Medicare. And there's no explanation about how we would handle Medicare Advantage or the supplementals, which is also why the progressives are so quickly trying to uh, talk about issues such as vision, dental, and hearing, because we all know one of the reasons uh, the American public likes Medicare Advantage is Medicare Advantage comes with those sorts of benefits or different supplemental programs uh, that exist out there that can be purchased. In addition to these pieces, what are some provisions that NAHU harbors some of the most concern over that is in the legislation as of now? Right now, we're concerned about civil penalties on employers for noncompliance with mental health parity. As you can imagine, we know that employers have gone through a lot over the past several years with implementing mental health parity. And then as recently as December, the CAA included the NQTL adequacy measurements for employers for mental health parity. And that went into place in February of this year. So we would like to see those roles carried out before adding another requirement onto employers for compliance with mental health parity. But we're also concerned about this because we know that Penalizing the employers in these cases is not something that's going to lead to compliance. They're really penalizing the wrong entity here. Employers oftentimes are running the networks that they're working with. They don't have a lot of control over the amount of mental health providers that that are within the networks, either through the carriers or through a TPA. So penalizing the employer is, is not a way to get at an end result of, of, of parity. So we're having those conversations now and trying to have them focus on ways to incentivize mental health providers from either going in network or just people to go into that field in general so we can increase the number of mental health providers. That would be great. And we signed on to a coalition letter voicing concerns about this and emphasizing the current 
pieces in place to incentivize employers to be in compliance with mental health parity, which we think go far enough. Then another piece that we're concerned about is a change in the affordability calculation for employer-sponsored coverage from the 9.6 that it is right now down to 8.5%. This would increase the responsibility of the share for employers, how much they provide towards their employee benefits. And it would also, the way that the provision is written, not allow for indexing, which means that that 8.5% won't increase with the cost of healthcare as it increases alongside inflation, which is why we sometimes had a 9.6 affordability, 9.8, 9.5. It was moving around a little bit. Um, and you all know to check in every year what the affordability scale is going to be for the next year. This 8.5% is an attempt to align it with the individual market. Although we, we understand that that seems like a great idea, we also are cautioning that it can have a negative impact on the employer-sponsored market, especially for some of those employers that may be smaller and may not be able to financially be able to adjust based on the affordability scale, also how it could impact some of the lower wage workers. So these are all issues that NEHU is raising from different aspects within reconciliation. So of the many provisions that we discussed, the ones that are major points of contention within the Democratic Party, the ones that we have concerns with, which ones do you think as of now will actually, in your opinion, make it into the final package? Well, something that we think won't make it into the final package is actually some changes on prescription drugs. And this would be essentially using what was HR3 in the previous congressional session allowing the secretary of HHS to negotiate drug prices, but putting it onto Medicare Part D and then also allowing for the private market to be able to opt in if they choose. And this is something that's had some controversy on both sides of the aisle. So it's something that we probably won't see in the final package and, and worth bringing up. It's also something that's been discussed about whether it will pass the rules for reconciliation, does it tie back to the federal budget? And one question I had recently was talking with some NEHU members, they were concerned that it was spending money. And so it's it can spend money or it can save money. It can do either of those to tie to the budget. It's not one or the other. So provisions to be able to be included in reconciliation, it can either be spending money from the budget or saving money. And this was an attempt to try to save some money on Medicare to pay for all of the other things that we've talked about um, that are very expensive, the Medicaid and Medicare pieces like Chris touched on, but this is a piece that is considered to possibly not be in the final package. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to the federal agencies for sending out part two of the surprise billing rules. These will touch on the independent dispute resolution or the arbitration process. And these just came out on Thursday, September 30th. So we are going to read through those and give you a full review on next week's podcast. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.